Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com. If you would like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can check out the archive on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get the chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really helps us and makes more people aware of the show. And we really appreciate it. This week, we're very pleased to be joined by Paddy Cullivan. You may know Paddy from the Camembert Quartet, The Late Late Show, Callan's Kicks, The Leviathan, Political Cabaret and Kilconomics. Paddy's historical live shows, 10 Dark Secrets of the Irish Revolution and 10 Dark Secrets of 1798 have toured all over Ireland and been a huge success. You can check out Paddy's website at paddycullivan.com. You're very welcome to the show, Paddy. Thanks for asking. One of the things we were discussing earlier about the coronavirus, it's been very difficult for people working in history, particularly people who are dealing with the public, tour guides, people working in museums. And obviously this is affecting you in a big way with the live shows. Yeah, my last show was in Derry on March the 7th. And then I had another one in Falcaro, would you believe, in Donegal on the 13th. And that was when the lockdown happened. And I just had to cancel every gig I had booked for the rest of the year, effectively. Uh, I think I'll be back gigging with the band maybe in September. But if we get a second wave, who knows? But it's been really bad. Um, all my friends in history and beyond in the music business, everywhere, anything to do with dealing with the public. It, it's quite scary. So uh, the one thing that's actually been keeping me sane is listening to your podcasts and various history podcasts and and stuff like that, you know what I mean? So, I mean, that that's one outlet for it all. But, you know, I, I hope it gets back to normal soon and I can bring the show back to people again. Well, hopefully, fingers crossed. And one of the things you're, you're very active on is social media. And just this week, there's been something to do with the Wexford 1798 Centre. And there's been a lot of controversy around the potential closing of it. And you've been talking about that a lot and tweeting about it a lot. Could you tell the listeners what that was about? Well, yeah, there I was peacefully writing my book on 1798, thinking this is my perfect time to do it. And then all of a sudden we got two controversies where there was where there was none about 1798. First was the Croppies Acre. They wanted a playground. So a, a bunch of interested people, Colin O'Rourke from 1798 Database, set up a petition. And luckily the playground for the Croppies Acre was stopped. And then this came along. We heard news only two weeks ago about the 1798 Rebellion Centre being sold. This amazing centre was built in 1998 in the Bicentenary. It cost £3 million. £1.6 million came from the EU. The other £1.4 million from the people of Wexford and, and private donations and stuff like that. And it's really a remarkable museum. But the problem is, like a lot of things, it's not in the national consciousness the way, let's say, the Titanic Centre or the Guinness Storehouse and stuff like that. But it is part of the historic fabric. And I believe something that's really important it was meant as a permanent memorial and twice it's been at risk of being sold. Uh, two years ago, they wanted to sell it for a distillery for €325,000, which is the price of a three-bedroom house in, in Dublin. Uh, so we, we really couldn't understand what was going on here. So we set up a petition. We got 6,000 names and just put a little bit of pressure on. And now the sale has been withdrawn. But, you know, this isn't a critique of what's going on. We understand how difficult it is with funds and things like this for councils to pay for the upkeep of museums. So the thing is, how do we get people interested? That's kind of really my focus as well as kind of 
debunking the myths of history is how do we get history to be of general interest to the public and get them visiting and get a trail going, let's say, for 1798. One idea I have is to go from Downpatrick to Downpatrick Head in Mayo and to bring people on a, on a journey of the entire rebellion throughout the country, almost like a wild rebellion way, if you will. So as well as saving the centre, and hopefully we want it to stay exactly where it is, it's a wonderful exhibit. I don't know if you've ever been. It's got a kind of holograms. You kind of sit in the centre and you reenact the entire Battle of Vinegar Hill. Holographic images, movie images. But it even goes into things like the Edmund Burke and Tom Paine, the great debate. Uh, and you get to hear excerpts from the debate. So actually, when we did the petition, the Edmund Burke Society got on and they were like, hold on, this is one of the only places you can actually see Edmund Burke mentioned bar the statue outside Trinity College. So there's a huge amount of interest and love for the centre. But what we really want to do is make it become part of the national consciousness because it is the National Rebellion Centre. You know, so I'm very happy for the reprieve at the moment. But really, how do we make it an ongoing success as well? Well, I think we were mentioning as well Barry Shepherd's show, History Now, and one of the recent episodes he had with Damien Shields was discussing battlefield sites and how good they are in the United States about the upkeep of historical monuments and historical sites, particularly to do with the American Civil War and the Revolutionary War. And in comparison, how poor we are in the 26 counties, even compared to Northern Ireland, at really looking after areas and, and sites that maybe battles, things like that, that have a huge uh, significance in Irish history. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think a part of the struggle for me is as well as these different petitions and and stuff like that, there's a constant battle with history. There's a kind of a battle against history in Ireland. Bar podcasts like yourselves or what Barry does, like Barry's had me on twice on his show in Belfast. It's local Belfast television. It has an audience of about 200,000 people, I think. The show is 26 minutes long and it deals with history once a week. We don't even have that on the national broadcaster. So it's quite remarkable to me that history is almost left to fend for itself. Then if it's a bit, you know, maybe politically dodgy for the establishment, they kind of put it on the back burner. So we get a lot about Daniel O'Connell, let's say, recently. But then we're told how unsung he is. And, of course, his pacifist message is love. But it's, it's harder to, to get good military history heard about on Irish TV or anything like that. You know what I mean? And I, 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 it could be to do with the current situation or not. But I, I really believe, like, I'm going to BBC Four a lot to hear about Irish history. And I think that's wrong. I, I think Irish history needs to be represented an awful lot more televisually, documentary-wise. It needs to be everywhere in the country. And I think this is why, let's say, certain places are struggling to get visitors because we're selling things like distilleries and ships that sank. Like, for instance, there's a museum in Downpatrick, the St. Patrick Centre. Downpatrick itself is full of history. Uh, St. Patrick is buried there. And yes, you know, it's not one of the major tourism draws of Ireland. So again, I think we need to find out why is there this battle against talking about certain elements of history, particularly the violent parts of our history, because I think it's really important we get all history across to people and that's what I'm trying to do in the show as well as well as that battle against the myths and that's why I'm doing the 10 dark secrets of 1798 battle against the a history we've been giving or the propaganda disguised as history which I'd like to get into later on yeah I mean we'll return to 1798 Paddy but one thing just on that topic of, of public history there does seem to be a certain nervousness the ones that I recall most recently were in 1916 
when we were commemorating mm -hmm. the rising, there was actually a massive banner put up with all the constitutional leaders, all the ones who opposed <laughs> physical force nationalism in, in the centre of Dublin, which I thought was kind of indicative of yeah. you know, the public attitude. Yes, I have that I have that in my show. And I love Dermot Ferger's description of a history. But yes, that is in my revolution show. That for some reason the, the battle between what we would call O'Connellism and militant republicanism goes on even now in our commemorative year. I mean, I, I had people telling me, oh, the glorification of 1916 in 2016. There was no glorification whatsoever. There was actually a, a, a quite a strong movement against it. You had the Bob Geldof documentary. You had those banners proclaiming how great Redmond and O'Connell and all the rest of them were. There's also a kind of a thing that I call subverting memory. And Guy Biner writes greatly about this and other people where... We turn around and even an article the other day by Stephen Collins talked about how Daniel O'Connell was virtually unsung. We had a documentary by Olivia O'Leary last year, one of the only history documentary RT did, about the forgotten King of Ireland. And the funny thing was that the opening shots of the O'Connell documentary that was two hours long, lavishly made. And of course, he's a fantastic subject. I mean, O'Connell is a brilliant figure. Sometimes he's made worthy and boring, actually, by, by the amount of hagiography he gets because actually he's he's a far more complex and interesting person but the opening shots of the show talking about how forgotten o'connell was were showing the massive statue of o'connell on the massive o'connell street the main street of ireland that he's named after there's many streets named after him so to say he was virtually unremembered and unsung and forgotten is incredible because he's everywhere yeah i mean it's just as you say i mean i think almost every major irish town has an o'connell street Exactly. And it's, it's, it's this, what I call the subversion of memory. It's that we tell ourselves a story. One of the things I say, and you know, I'm definitely coming from a pro-independence viewpoint. I, I'm, you know, I, I joke with Barry about this, that I, I, I'm not one of these balanced historians. I definitely know who, in my mind, the good guys are and the bad guys are. That doesn't mean I don't want to deal with the complexity of what went on. I think it's really important to deal with that. But I think sometimes we can look at history as if, you know, these were just two protagonists and that was it. Whereas I look at it more like Star Wars. You've got the rebels and the empire. Paddy, we were speaking about 1798 and the importance of it. Uh, do you think that's been a neglected topic in recent years? Or why? what drew you to 1798? Why do you think it's such an important topic? Well, initially, you know, I got into 2016 when that happened with the revolution. And then I, I go, I have to do another show because the show had gone really well, the revolution show. And I realized it was 2018 and it was 220 years since the rebellion. I had studied art history in our college and I did visual communication. One of my first projects was about how Republican street names, things that were renamed in Ireland, funny enough, in Dublin, geographically, you could place them. Working class areas of Northside Dublin were named after heroes. And then Southside Dublin retained its empirical names. Even Kingstown was changed to Dunleary, but it was still named after a king. And Oliver Bond was the apartment block behind NCAD. And it was remarkable to find out about Oliver Bond. He was one of the United Irishmen. My father did a show on Miles Spurn in 1998 himself. He's a musician and he worked with Martin Dempsey. And they did a show about the book Miles Byrne wrote. So... I decided in 2018, this is the ideal time now to talk about 1798. And I thought there'd be a lot more remembrance. I know that the centenary commemoration was on for 100 years ago, but I thought we'd, we'd at least get a few mentions going for this. There was nothing. There was zero. And once I explored the history, it took me about six months to put together the show. I couldn't believe this world had opened up for me. And 
I started performing the show in May of 2018. I've done it about a hundred times since to packed audiences and they love it too. They really fall in love with the year as well. And the big thing I noticed about it was that nobody knows the history. And the reason I went for the 10 Dark Secrets is the more that I went into it, I always knew there was controversy over Wolf Tone's death, that it wasn't as simple as he committed suicide in prison. And the more you dig into that and delve into it, you realize how deeply complex that is. And then as you go through even his origins, Wolf Tone, but also that people just didn't know basic stuff like that the Presbyterians were under the penal laws. And that 1798 is a remarkable time in that it's a time when Protestant, Catholic and dissenter get together to overthrow and to set up a republic inspired by the French Revolution. And this is something, sometimes it's framed as a Catholic revolution against Protestants. And I, I even think there's a lot of propaganda to push it towards that, that it's, it's some kind of linear thing that's the same as all the other rebellions in Irish history. And in fact, it's a lot more complex. Presbyterians and Protestants formed the main leadership of the 18 leaders of the United Irishmen. 12 of them were Protestants, three of them were Presbyterians, and three of them were Catholics. This is in the famous composite picture that we know from 1898. So little things like this were starting to creep in. And then I realized what a fantastic involved time of history it was. And the amazing cast of characters, the fact that Wolf Tone met both Washington and Napoleon. And he was traveling around and, and trying to arrange this revolution. And then what happened itself with the French landing in Kalala as well. And all the associations we have with internationally with this. So I, I put the show together with about 300 images, songs and all the rest of it. Brought it out. An audience have just been lapping it up and loving it until, unfortunately, the coronavirus came along. Now, one of the things, my mother is from Innescrone. So when we'd be traveling more into the Mayo end of things, I was always aware of 1798 going into Balana and Kalala and places like that where you'd see the French flags up or there was there was commemoration of 1798 but that did not extend throughout the rest of the country it was very very localized and maybe localized in other parts of the country but on a nationwide scale and as you're talking there about 1798 a Hollywood screenwriter couldn't come up with it like the the people behind the Games of Thrones couldn't come up with it it's such a fascinating period in Irish history and so tied in as you say to what's happening internationally in the United States and in France and all these great ideas that are coming to the fore about liberty and human rights. It's absolutely amazing and and you know there's a bit of humor in my show as well but I do say to people is though that the horrendous violence of 1798 it, it I always say it makes Game of Thrones look like an episode of Friends because the horrific levels of torture that we witnessed, uh, the terror of 1797 when the French failed to invade or, or failed to land in Bantry Bay in 1796, another controversy I go into in the show because they quite literally could have landed, but Rushi ordered them not to land. They claim it that the weather got too bad for them to land, but actually it was a delay by one of the officers who, who later, by the way, went missing at Waterloo. So he has a fantastic pedigree of messing up a little bit like Owen McNeil. So it's a fascinating story, and 30,000 people die in this. At the Battle of New Ross alone, 2,800 people die in one day. That's a Pearl Harbor. That's a 9-11. It dwarfs our civil war. It dwarfs 1916 and a lot of different things. It's comparable to the war dead of World War I, all right. It's huge, and the, the weird thing, like with both stories, with Revolution and 1798, is a lot of these people knew each other, you know, Lord Edward Fitzgerald was a member of Parliament. Wolf Tone and Thomas Russell would visit Parliament, and initially the United Irishmen 
are very much just trying to get Parliament to reform during the time of Grattan's Parliament. And of course, the usual thing happens as it happens in all revolutions. There's total rejection of this reform. The French Revolution happens and then a draconian government reaction to the people of Ireland that causes the rebellion. What takes place is unbelievable over that long, hot summer of 1798. I would love to actually put it into graphic novel form or I'm working on a thing for Netflix in my mind because I, I honestly think that it's a story like no other. You would assume, like, as a national broadcaster, RTE, you have your drama series, you have your documentaries. Just looking at 1798, you could fill years of material as completely, completely ignored. There's years of material alone. There's a whole TV show just in Lord Edward fighting on a battlefield in America in 1782 with the British Army being left for dead and being rescued by an escaped slave, Tony Small, bringing Tony back to live in Leinster House as, you know, em employing him. But the fact that one of the richest men in Ireland or from the richest family, his best friend is an escaped slave who rescued him on an American battlefield. And even the adventures they had together is absolutely phenomenal. That alone is worthy of a TV series. So it is incredible. Orti did in 1982 or 83, I believe, the year of the French was a large production in conjunction with Channel 4. And it's fabulous. I've actually seen it. Somebody managed to get me a copy of it. Six hours, music by the Chieftains, huge cast, including McLally and, and various people like that. But every time I ask about it in the archives and stuff, they say, ah, it'd be too complicated to put it together. Or uh, I think it's a rights issue, possibly because three different companies made it. But there was an interest in that. There, in 1998, there was a show called The Officer from France with Adrian Dunbar as Wolf Tone. But again, can't seem to find it. Couldn't even find a still from that show. And these are things we should be doing. Our history is full of these rich stories. And again, it's possible to do with the, the political sensitivities. And I really think we need to get over that. I think we really need to actually deal with our history as rip-roaring fun. I mean, we haven't even made a fantasy series based on Cúhullan or Finn McCool yet, and those stories are essential. In fact, half the stories like Tolkien and Game of Thrones rob half their storylines from Irish history, the Red Wedding being a case in point. So we need to start making these things about our own history and, and doing them with confidence, you know, because actually... We've got this fabulous studio out in Ardmore that made Vikings and the Tudors. So we've made TV programs about <laughs> our mortal enemies, but not about our actual heroes. Well, we also have a situation where the government, I don't know if the final decision has been made yet, about removing history as a core subject from the junior cert, which seems incredible to me. Like making a, an optional subject for the leaving cert is one thing, but to think that there will be kids in Ireland whose last connection with Irish history is when they leave primary school at 12 years old seems absolutely incredible. Well, this is true, but I think that got a reprieve from the minister, Joe McHugh, which I, I, I was very happy about. I think any attempt to get rid of history is bad, but I'm going to offer another opinion on that, which is history in schools is important, but even more important is that history has a constant presence in our lives, in broadcasting, all over the place. And it's not just a niche interest. It, it quite literally is the story of ourselves. My interest in history continued after school, luckily. My, funny, my, my Leaving Cert essay was John Charter's Mystery Man of the Treaty, who had been mentioned in Unchin McKeown's uh, Survivors. And of course, he's the seventh man of the treaty nobody knows about. And that's what got me interested in those little quirks and bits of history that, that get forgotten or, or a myth builds up around them. 
And I really believe that it's not just schools, but actually having it as a presence. And that's why it's lack of presence on our TVs and all of this. Like, we should be almost factory churning out history shows. I think T.G. Cahar does a great job of this, even though they kind of have to be bilingual. But I think they do a great job of that. But I think it, there should be far more of it going on on Virgin Media or T on our radio. We need to have a lot of it. I mean, and as I say, Barry's show, once a week, you get a, a long history, a long involved history discussion about one subject, which I think is really, really important. So that presence has to be absolutely everywhere. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second, though, Paddy. What about the idea that popular entertainment and films, and I'm thinking in particular of Neil Jordan's Michael Collins film, can actually support <laughs> the public's understanding of history? Yes, no, I, I agree completely. And even in my Revolution show, I misquote Mary McCarthy by saying, not a single word in the Michael Collins film is true, including and and but. I'm totally aware that history can be terribly mishandled and wrong. I mean, in that Michael Collins film alone, I always laugh at the fact that he has the treaty election of 1922 on the 7th of June. And, you know, for someone who's a writer and obviously would love Joyce, I mean, we all know that the treaty election was on the 16th of June, 1922. And the way we know that is because the 16th of June is Bloomsday and 1922 is the year that Ulysses was published. So even as a mnemonic or something like that to remember, uh, you would get the date right. Other people argue, oh, well, you need historical license. I argue, no. I mean, Vikings has a historical consultant who's very much true to both the legends or, and the facts or at least the lineage that went on during that time. I think real history you don't need to actually augment it. You don't need to um, make up stuff. Another thing I deal with is the modern idea of fake news in history. For instance, there's a plaque in Balneslow, and I always laugh at it. I always have to do it with an accent. And the plaque, it's, it's on one of the buildings on the main street, and it said, uh, Wolf Town had B&B &B here in 1796, and it claims it was a hotel called Cuff's Hotel. And I always say, well, he wasn't even in the country in 1796. And who cares that he had B&B there? It's probably about the least important thing we know. He might have gone there in 1786 when he was on his way to Galway to try and win Richard Martin's wife. But, you know, there's plenty of fake news to go around and there's plenty of fakery to go around. The real history alone is, is fantastic. And we should just use that, the real circumstance of history. And the great thing about 1798, for instance, is if you're looking at it, purely from a narrative or dramatic narrative, it is a failure, but it's one of the most noble failures ever. And um, it's got moments of great heroism and even the daring of General Humbert marching 150 kilometers into the center of Ireland it is just one of the most remarkable stories that's ever happened. It, sh it should be on the, the lips of every school kid in the country. Yeah, I think history can be messed around with, but it's better that it's messed around with and opens people or brings people in to a further interest of history than not talking about it at all. And that's, that's maybe why I, I always, I'm uncomfortable with getting rid of statues or getting rid of history entirely, because once you have a blank space or it's not there, then you're never going to talk about it. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I mean, just going back to Michael Collins, which is the most famous movie for a second. I mean, while there's plenty wrong with it, and I, and I was very entertained by your description, Paddy, I think it actually gets a lot of people interested in the period. And it does, you know, it does sketch out the major parts of the period and people can look further. So I'm not, I'm not totally opposed to it, as long as people understand, though, that it's not actual history. Absolutely. And I mean, look, history isn't about one official story and then the, the anti-story. But I definitely think Michael Collins, you know, it's 9.99 in Dublin Airport and a lot of tourists go away and they think that's the story. And it's a good old romp. Do you know what I mean? But 
if it does bring you in to dig deeper, you find the complexity of Michael Collins. He's a far more complex character than the kind of the fella from Cork who's a bit of crack that likes to wrestle and but but has a kind of there's a kind of a a nouse he has for guerrilla warfare. Collins is a far more interesting character and far deeper. I'm, my new show is going to be actually about him exclusively because, I mean, at 19 years of age, he's sworn into the IRB. And within 12 years, he's across the negotiating table. And it's a far more interesting and complex story than we think. I essentially think of Michael Collins more like a James Bond or a super spy, even in the period in London before 1916 even happens. He's planning to take down the empire long before anybody else is and he, he's a he's a very interesting from that point of view well paddy I, I couldn't agree more because the one thing that sort of annoys me a little bit is the sort of facebook history and particularly with michael collins the hagiography of collins and you cannot criticize collins collins was the most ideal example of irish republicanism that makes him a very dull character it's the complexity, it's the, the gray areas, it's the, it's the uncomfortable aspects of his character that make him so fascinating as an individual. Well, yes, definitely. And I mean, I, I recently saw a, a picture, Pauline Murphy from Ireland's Eye put up a, a, a pic of the blue shirt saluting at, at Collins Memorial in Belle Nablaw in the, the 30s. A lot of people think Collins would have been a blue shirt. I don't believe that at all. In, in fact, I think he would have hated them. And I, I just think him being taken on by Fine Gael, him being hated by Republicans. I think they're both wrong. I think they're both actually wrong about Collins. I think Collins w was trying to balance up a few things. I think he was still trying to fight the war in the North surreptitiously while pretending to, to run a, a provisional government down South. I think there was a lot of complexities going on there. And I think one of the reasons he was got rid of was because of that complexity, because he wasn't going to just simply do what was required of him. Uh, that's not conspiracy theory. Once you dig into it, you, you find there's an awful lot of conflict going on there. I mean, I laugh in the film as well. He goes down and knocks on the door of the forecourts and tells them, you know, get out, lads. Come on now. Stop this old, old rubbish. But Collins was nowhere near the forecourts, nor did he really want to bombard the forecourts. Uh, Desmond C. Greaves writes in a, a fantastic piece in the Liam Mellows book, which shows that it, it was almost like he was browbeaten into doing it or that he did it with the intention that he was going to end the civil war immensely quickly and only do it as a display to the British to stop them reinvading or employing McCready's troops in the park. All of this stuff is very interesting and it's worth digging into in more detail at some stage. But yeah, you're right. It's that hagiography stuff. Like I'm on a few pages on Facebook too, and it's funny. They're the people who absolutely adore him. I think he's great too, but I think he's great for totally different reasons. And I think both Republicans have it wrong in hating him so much. And I think both the people that love him don't understand him either. It's quite important. I mean, recently I saw a post by a historian writing about the Wexford Bridge Massacre in 1798. And he repeats a cliche that the people who did it had a big black flag with a crucifix on it with the letters MWS. And that was meant to stand for murder without sin. Now this gets repeated and it gets repeated enough and enough and that it becomes the story. And of course, you dig deeper, you read Guy Biner's book and you see that Joseph Holt actually said in 1828 in a biography of him, he actually said, no, it didn't mean murder without sin. It meant marksman Wexford Shell Malier. Because, of course, why would somebody have a flag advertising murder without sin on June 20th in Wexford when the town had just been run by a council of Protestants and Catholics working in tandem together? So these lies are told the propaganda happens at the very time of the history we see it even today in journalism and fake news 
And then that goes into the public narrative and then it becomes the memory. And that's what I'm battling against all the time. Let's take it back. Let's dig deeper. Let's peel the onion and actually see what the what the real complexity is. Yeah, I mean, if there's one constant in history, though, it's that not only the victors, but also the vanquished will always try to shape the story to their advantage afterwards. Definitely. They definitely do. And that's, again, like I say, the anti-Collins rhetoric is always what he did and how he started the war on us and all types of things like that. And the vanquished, too, I mean, in 1798, there is that sense. But I'll, I'll be honest, but 1798 is very, very different. The government had total control of the narrative. A historian called Musgrave wrote the first history in 1802. And that's where we get a huge amount of the fake history that we're given about 1798. Biner points out brilliantly in his book, uh, Forget for Remembrance, that the book is a thousand pages long, but only 26 pages of Musgrave's history deals with Ulster. Because, of course, Ulster is so uncomfortable to modern historians and, and even historians then, because it was a Presbyterian revolt, that Presbyterians and Protestants were the Republicans up there. And... I think this is the battle that we're always having. The real vanquished history only begins in 1808 of 1798 with a publisher called Waddy Cox. And he's one of my favorite characters in history. He brought out a magazine called the Irish Magazine. And it used to sell 5,000 copies. It was hugely successful in Ireland. But this is where we get those amazing illustrations by Henry Brocas of, let's say, pitch capping or half hanging or the walking gallows heppenstall. And we only have those images today because a vanquished United Irishman decided to publish this magazine. We wouldn't have it. We'd only have the government propaganda. And yet the Crookshank drawings of Wexford Bridge and the ape-like United Irishman murdering Protestants, that, that has come down as well. So the battle between Crookshank on one side with the government propaganda, with his imagery and Cox on the other, those images still hang up in, the, in Kelly Sellers of Belfast, for instance. The story of the illustrations alone tell you everything you need to know about the battle for history. And, and of course, the other complicated thing about 1798 is that it's in the later 19th century kind of adopted by another species of nationalist who, who changed the story again. Well, yeah, I mean, I have a tendency to blame Daniel O'Connell, whom Waddy Cox called the great mendicant, for, in a sense, he poo-pooed the 1798 men and he made emancipation about Catholic emancipation, which is fair enough. But I would say it was like he's bringing identity politics into the thing. He didn't want to emancipate everybody like Wolf Tone, Protestant, Catholic and dissenter. It was about Catholic emancipation. And fair enough, I get it. But funny enough, you dig deep enough into O'Connell's commentary about 1798 and he, he's perfectly happy with Robert Emmett being executed and all the rest of it. O'Connell doesn't like violence, but he's OK with state violence. He's what I call a selective pacifist. And then later on, it's kind of handy for green Catholic nationalism to take on Wolf Tone to the point where you don't even know Wolf Tone was a Protestant. This strange realignment in the 1800s where, you know, to be Catholic is to be Irish, is to be nationalist. To be uh, Protestant is to be loyal, is to be orange. And that's completely a misnomer. It's completely wrong. It's funny the experience I have doing the show. I give out quite strongly about the Catholic Church in the show because there's a funny memorial in Castle Bar to the year of the French from 1953. Even though it's dedicated to General Humbert and the French incursion, the symbol on it is a Catholic priest blessing a pikeman, which couldn't be further from the truth. The Catholic Church excommunicated anybody who fought in the rebellion on June 24th. 
In fact, Father John Murphy was called by the Bishop of Ferns the feces of the church. And even on this hilarious memorial in Castlebar, which we can never get rid of just for kitsch value, the symbol of Ireland is a harp and the symbol of France is a fleur-de-lis. Any fool knows that the fleur-de-lis is the symbol of royal France. In fact, if General Humbert was to come back and see it, he'd, he'd be enraged. And so I tell this history and, and how the Catholicization of the rebellion of 1798 is completely wrong. And one lady came up to me after a show and she was visibly upset. And I said, what's wrong? And she goes, well, why were the Catholic Church so mean uh, to the United Irishmen? Uh, you know, Catholic and Irish and nationalist. And I said, because the Catholic Church isn't Irish. It's a strange thing the Irish have done to kind of equate Irishness with Catholicism. I said to her, the Catholic Church is essentially like Google. It's a multinational corporation with a branch in every country. It's Daniel O'Connell and, and this strange Irish way of taking on something as their own, who made being Irish to be Catholic. And I think the lesson of 1798, if we look at it, is the brilliant, the three communities of English, Scots and Irish that live on this island. Uh, this was the one time that the Scots and the Irish got together and beat up on the English. And it's, it, you know, when we start peeling away and looking at this stuff and getting rid of the cliches of history, we actually find a much richer core there. And, and actually, it's a history that Protestants and Presbyterians in the North, who are loyal, who might have joined the Irishman, but they would have had relatives, possibly, who were United Irishmen. It's a history they too can own. We have to share it. You know what I mean? It's got to be something they can own as long as we tell it properly. Well, Paddy, as you mentioned there about the 1798 statue, statues at the moment are a hugely controversial area with the Black Lives Matter, for example, in the US and the issues with the statues in Bristol being pulled down. How do you see with your your background in art history and all the, the research you've been doing in recent years too about Irish history, how do you see the issue of how we commemorate history in statues in Ireland? It's, it's a funny thing. I wrote an article a few years ago about Charlottesville and what was going on with Robert E. Lee. And, you know, obviously nobody... Nobody wants statues of slavers and people like that around the place. But, you know, the funny thing about it is we had a great conversation about slavery coming up as a result of these awful things. And I sometimes think when you remove statues like Sean Russell and all the rest of it, again, like I said, we have a blank space and the conversation stops. The Hungarians have a wonderful solution. In Budapest, all the statues of Stalin and Marx and Lenin were moved out to a place called Statue Park, which is now one of the major tourist draws of Budapest. So you can actually go out and visit. The, the, it's like a communist museum, a rogues gallery. But I find that's great because you get to teach the history and show, you know, this is gone now, but this is what we were. And I feel like we should have done that in Ireland. I feel like if we were mature in Ireland, we wouldn't have got rid of the statue of George II on, in the Coombe or uh, blown up the statue of George II in Stevens Green or the statue of William III on Dame Street, because, I mean, Waddy Cox, yes, he did try and cut off the head of the statue of William in the 1830s. But, you know, in, in a new parity of esteem Ireland, if we get a united Ireland, you know, maybe the unionists would like to have a statue of William III. And, of course, William III was, you know, bought slaves from Colston in Bristol. I really believe we could have taken a lot of these statues, like Nelson, and put them into a kind of a park of colonialism. And I still believe in Ireland we should have a museum of colonialism. Up in Dublin Castle, there are magnificent portraits of Cornwallis, of George III, of the Prince Regent, 
and all of these things. And they just sit in there and we don't, a lot of people don't know about it, but it's fabulous. It, it's showing you the history of the British administration in Ireland. And I really believe that instead of blowing up Nelson's pillar, we could have actually moved Nelson, put Pierce on top of it, and uh, still had that wonderful granite pillar to climb up and look down on the traffic. And that way we could teach people about the history. I think when you get rid of statues, you get rid of history. There's a few black historians who believe that too, that you know, with, you, you can get rid of certain heinous things or put them into a park and say, this was the horrific Confederacy. Do you know what I mean? And I agree, of course, those statues from 1924 are, of course, done for a reason and for an ahistorical and kind of history washing reason. And of course, I would take them down. But I also think all of it needs to be contextualized. I think people need to learn the history so we never go back there again. Yeah, I mean, I think, though, the one thing that you can't say about statues, this is just my opinion, is that they don't mean anything. I mean, statues clearly do project the meaning into the public sphere. You know, and um, and that's why people destroy them. So, you know, a lot, like a lot of the statues you mentioned, Paddy, were destroyed in the aftermath of the Civil War and they were destroyed for a symbolic reason, you know, by the IRA to show that we don't accept this order and that we're still fighting for an independent Ireland as they saw, you know, this idea of purging Ireland of imperialism. So, like, mm. I mean, in the case of, of Sean Russell, though, who we might talk about, like, I, I agree with you, I'm not in, in favour of erasing history, but I do think the statues do mean something, and I don't understand why we have a statue of Sean Russell and none, for example, of Patrick Pearson Dublin. Well, I go into my revolution show, but the last chapter of it is really about my search for Patrick Pierce. There is no city centre statue of Patrick Pierce. There was an attempt in 1967 to put one up. It was rejected by the council. Another one in 1978. It's remarkable. There's no statue of him in front of the GPO reading the proclamation. I, I, it's amazing. In 2008, I went to Buenos Aires, and in a place called Plaza Irlanda, which is an entire park dedicated to Ireland, by the way, I come upon a statue of Patrick Pierce. So I had to go 11,000 miles to actually find a statue of Patrick Pierce in a city centre. We do have a bust of a mountain St. Enders and there's one in Tralee, but no actual statue in the city centre. But then again, James Connolly only got a statue in 1996. And this tells us again about the subversion of memory. There are historians who tell us that republicanism was lauded and elevated when the state was founded. And yet, the War Memorial Gardens opened in 1939, 24 years before the Garden of Remembrance. You know what I mean? And, you know, there's this sense that certain things were forgotten and other things were elevated. It's actually quite the opposite. The reason there's no Patrick Pierce statue is because he's still a controversial figure to governments of the time because his message was get rid of governments you don't like. And, and it is quite remarkable. With Sean Russell... You know, the, the argument about whether Sean Russell was a collaborator or a co-belligerent. I mean, this is a word that nobody's brought up is the idea of co-belligerent, that your enemy's enemy is your friend. For instance, Mannerheim in Finland is lauded as the greatest Finn that ever lived. But I mean, he fought a six year war against the Russians, along with the Germans during World War Two. So all of these things, again, are complex. I'm not defending any of it. But again, we're having a conversation. I mean, the amount of times Sean Russell had been damaged is almost comical. But what I would say is that, you know, if it needs to be moved or anything like that, you know, who is it a victory for, you know, or is it a story about this continuing movement that went on, even though it was, it was fragmented and tiny? And does it lead people to study what happened to the, the fragmentation of the resistance movement in Ireland? I mean, there's an awful lot to unpack with it. And I don't know if getting rid of things again, I don't know if getting rid of things is the answer. For instance, let me put it this way. The same ethos that said it's okay to get rid of statues and blow up Nelson's pillar 
was the same ethos that said Georgian architecture is British. So let's get rid of it. Nothing could be further from the truth. James Gandon didn't get down on his hands and knees and build the customs house with a trowel. That's Irish work. That's Irish labor. That's Irish people building in what was an international style. You can find neoclassical architecture everywhere from Boston to St. Petersburg. So that beautiful architecture we were bequeathed, a lot of the reason for getting rid of it by successful governments, Fianna Fáil and all of that, was, oh, sure, that's British, get rid of it, and we'll put our own new modernist architecture up. Frascati House in 1972, Noel Lamas says it's of no historical value. And Frascati House, 10 years later, is demolished and replaced by a shopping centre. This was the home of Lord Edward Fitzgerald. Tom Paine stayed in that house. That should be the 1798 Rebellion Museum of Dublin, which we still don't have. And yet, we were allowed to get rid of these things under this spurious a historical idea that Georgian architecture is British and that everything before 1922 is somehow up for demolition. That, that's an appalling way to think about things because what we were left, I mean, if there was anything good left from years of British occupation, it was the architecture, but never mistake it for being British. It was built in an international style that was going on all over the world at the time by Irish hands. That's very true, Paddy, and it's it's really heartbreaking when you see the cultural vandalism, the architectural vandalism that went on in Dublin in the 1960s and, and on from there. There's one more thing I mentioned as well. We talked about the 100th anniversary of 1916 and probably one of the most controversial aspects of that, how it was commemorated, if we're returning to statues and memorials, is the memorial wall in Glasnevin Cemetery and the idea to list everybody's name who died, whether they were coming a man or Irish citizen army or whether they were Sherwood foresters. What do you think the thinking is behind doing something like that, knowing that it's going to be very controversial? Some of the motivation might be that we're over this conflict and let's just remember everybody who fought in it. I think that's fair enough. But, you know, in America, I, the joke I have on my show is, you know, if the Vietnam Memorial in Washington was to include all the Vietnamese people who died, then the memorial would stretch to Mount Rushmore. I, I sometimes think in Ireland, we, we have a tendency to navel gaze and try and accommodate almost every single thing as a way. And I, I'm hoping, my hope would be that you're trying to welcome in, let's say, unionists or people who don't believe the same thing as Republicans or nationalists do. But in another way, it kind of messes, it messes with history too much to a degree. I, I think you should have separate memorials. I think it's what led to the black and tans controversy, to be honest, which is that, you know, we, we treat this as a piece of history that has no good and no bad, and that these people never did nothing wrong ever, and they were just policemen doing their job, uh, killed in the line of duty, etc. You know, it's oversimplifying everything. And I just think I just think that the commemorative wall, maybe have three different commemorative walls and everybody can go visit their favorite wall or the people they support in it. Again, I bring this up the Star Wars analogy. Do we remember the Death Star and Darth Vader as well as Luke Skywalker? Uh, I, I'm not sure that, you know, we can, we can all look back and forgive that either, you know? Yes, indeed, Paddy. And one of the things um, that's come back into my mind now thinking about it was, that in 2016, I think the official government ad promoting the commemorations, it didn't include any pictures of the 1916 leaders. It didn't include any reference to the sites. I think there was 
a shot of Grafton Street and images of the logos of Google and Facebook and Twitter. So, like, you know, that Ireland is such a great hub 100 years later of international capitalism and we're so good at mm. running, like, tax avoidance schemes for big companies. But <laughs> it's not the thing with, uh, with commemorating. The commemorations in 2016 weren't about 1916. They were about 2016. They were, but all commemoration is about the present. I mean, again, as you were saying, John, it, it's like 1898 is a very different world and a very different, they, they use 1798 for a very different meaning at the time. Yeah, that was a historical stuff. And people have taken on James Joyce's history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. And they've tried to apply it to everything. And I do think this is why things like the 1798 Rebellion Centre being up for sale is a thing. Because I genuinely think there is a very strong movement to try and get rid of and forget history. I get it. I understand that they don't want it to repeat itself. But there is another thing to it where authorities or governments, they don't like remembering rebellions or revolutions. Because, as I said before, you might put the idea into people's heads. We can see current revolutions or movements being very conveniently forgotten and other ones being elevated. You know, for instance, the marriage referendum, uh, the abortion referendum will always and of, of logically be talked about in the history books. But already you can see that the water charges movement or protest is being quietly <laughs> consigned to the dustbin of history as if it never happened, even though it was the most successful people movement in Ireland since the conscription crisis in that the people got together and actually stopped the thing from happening. And it's amazing to see that kind of revisionism or shall I say, totskischwiegen, very important word. Totskischwiegen means death by not mentioning. And that happening in real time. And you might see in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years that the water movement is looked on as a footnote, even though at the time it was absolutely huge. And it changed the outcomes of elections and, and all sorts of things like that. Also remember with 2016, there was no government in place. Uh, government negotiations took three months. So nobody could actually take ownership or responsibility for it. And what I don't think anybody's mentioned yet is that we now have a government with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in power, the two civil war parties who presumably will be in power when we come to commemorate the civil war in 2022 and 23. So that's going to be some, that's going to be enjoyable watching them grin and bear that. You know what I mean? And I think commemoration is a funny thing. Like I said, 2016, you could see the difference in people, the people that come to my shows, regular people who love history and official Ireland. You could see the total difference in approach. It even happened in St. Patrick's Day parades. This was the funniest thing of all. Official St. Patrick's Day parades were all about things like the future or dream. And then my dad turned around to me and he said, do you know in 1966 they commissioned a piece of music? And the first line of the piece of music was forget the past. So there was always an attempt to go, we're remembering this, but don't get any ideas. And the funny thing about the St. Patrick's Day parades that were run by local people was they all featured people dressed up as volunteers and the executions and 1916 and the rebel leaders. And all the official state ones were kind of spurious things with, you know, artistic floats and stuff like that. So you can see that the divide is between the people's love and interest in their own history and acceptance of it. 
an official Ireland's kind of disregard for it. I mean, you can already see now that there's going to be a big move to talk about the Finnish Civil War because it was much worse than the Irish Civil War. And that's a way of saying, didn't we do okay? You know, what's interesting about that is I actually met a Finnish historian at a conference uh, two years ago, and I asked him about this because this is this big trope in Irish history that why are we making a big deal about the Irish Civil War when the Finns forgot about theirs right away and they got on with it? And mm -hmm. uh, he said, that's absolute nonsense. He said, there's Finnish memories bitterly, bitterly divided over their 1918 Civil War to this day. So I'd like, that's one trope I'd like to knock on the head, actually. You'd like to knock that on the head that... Finns got on with it and we should just forget about the Civil War here, you know, that we were so, such idiots that we kept banging on about it for years, you know? Listen, I work with a lot of different people in, in bands and stuff, and I, I have a Finnish friend and he still bangs on about it. So, look, politics and history are as alive and well. You know, I, I saw a comment today by somebody saying politics and history don't mix. And I said, are you kidding me? They are the same. And history is just the politics of yesterday. So this idea and that somehow we're going to talk about the Civil War in, in 2022 and 23, and it's not going to raise some emotions. I mean, I think it's crazy because it was a really tough, strange time. And even though our casualty figures may not be as high as certain other places, it was still brutal. And we have to face up to that. But I mean, I think we can face up to it with maturity. I deal with it quite extensively in the revolution show. And it is always shocking to people, the executions, the extrajudicial executions and stuff like that. And again, in the O'Connell-like fashion, how that's all defended as, you know, well, it's the state. That's OK. And, you know, and by the same token, you know, you can get annoyed with the Republicans for being so hard in their convictions. You know what I mean? But then they had been let down. They had sworn an oath. All these things are vitally important. These are things we have to remember. And then an oath back then meant a huge amount. And swearing an oath to a king then after swearing an oath to the Republic is almost unthinkable. So all of this stuff is going to have to be dealt with. And of course, I don't even, I, I, I'm not sure we have the right government to deal with it. I mean, I, I have written quite a lot in the Civil War myself. And the only thing I'll say about the centenary is uh, it would be a very bad thing to bring up the animosity of that era. But on the other hand, I think we should all make an effort to understand where everybody was coming from at that time and that they all had genuine reasons for taking the decisions that they took. Absolutely. I, I did a show about the, the revolution and I, one of the things here at the end is I was joking about the fact that civil war politics isn't over and that only in 2012 did a memorial go up to Kevin O'Higgins. And within a couple of months, some fella had smashed it in with a baseball bat. Okay. And I just said, if you think civil war politics is over, look at this. And a guy jumped up in the room and said, I know his grandniece and she's lovely. And it was hilarious because I said, but I'm not getting at him or his grandniece. I'm just showing you. I'm just I'm, I'm explaining to you that passions run high and passions will still run high. You know, you can get emotional about something that happened a thousand years ago. But as long as we're we deal with it fairly and squarely and, and understand where it's coming from and don't try and use it to lord over each other. But let's do it truthfully as well. I mean, what I'd hope we don't see is, is another Bob Geldof documentary telling us how terrible they all were, which had led me to writing the song, Tell Me Why I Don't Like Easter Mondays. Yes, uh, Bob can always be depended on for something like that, can't he? Well, look, I don't mind it. All voices are welcome. But the point is, there's a definite weight to certain voices. And that, you know, there's kind of a voguish, faddish thing of like saying how dreadful our revolutions were, you know, and how wonderful everything was. But I noticed with a lot of debates, and I'm sure you guys see this too, that go on on Facebook and all of this, and even when everyone gives out about the Russian Revolution, 
you know, they always fail to mention, well, what caused it in the first place? What drove people to this, to this extremity? Was life under the czar amazing? You know, was life in, in, in Dublin truly so great? Or really was it the slum of Europe? And that, that caused a huge amount of unhappiness. You know, Wolf Tone and the United Irishman started out as people who just wanted to change parliament. Patrick Pierce in the early 1900s would have been for home rule. What changed them? Well, what changed them was injustice. What changed them was a society that was no longer tenable. And you can give out about them as much as you like. But, I mean, if you force people to the edge like that, they are going to act. History is less about the wild people who revolt and as much about the intransigence of the society they revolt against. So, Paddy, what are you planning now at the moment? What have you got on your agenda? Well, I'm... Halfway through the book, The Tender Secrets of 1798, which is great. I'm trying to do about a thousand words a day. It's tough, though, because when you're writing history, you're just fact-checking all the time. You might spend an hour getting a sentence done because you're not quite sure about something. And you spend, you go down this rabbit hole of research and then you wake up and it's dark and you're going, what, what's going on? And then also, hopefully when shows come back, I'll be bringing that show around, the Revolution show. But also my new show will be The Ten Dark Secrets of Michael Collins because there's enough in Collins just for a show, and I have the graphic done for that, and I'm looking forward to that, and trying to bring history to as many people as possible, and making it entertaining, and again, you know, being quite surprised by how many people out there truly love it. Well, Paddy, thank you very much for coming on today, and for all the people who are listening, if you'd like to check out Paddy's website, paddycullivan.com i'm sure you'll be letting people know there when the book is available and when the live shows are back and running and also you're on twitter as well paddy do you want to say your your twitter handle there for people who'd like to follow you at paddy cullivan at paddy cullivan so thank you very much paddy and on behalf of myself my co-presenter john dorney from the irishstory.com thank you very much for listening today and if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>